You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you that you are kind and good and loving to the core of who you are not just in yourself, but in and for us. We thank you that you revealed your love and your grace through the person of Jesus. And as we turn to your word to look at him and his life and his words today, would you fill us and me and all of us with the power of the Holy Spirit so that we would not just be those who look at your word and walk away unchanged, but that we would be those who respond with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church family. Good to see you. So awesome to see those students leading us last week, wasn't it? Uh, They did an uh, amazing job. I'm so grateful for them. I thought about just asking them to just keep on continuing and give me a whole month off. But uh, I figured I should come back here today. Um, Grateful to see you. We are in this sermon series we're calling um, The Way of Jesus. It's a study on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is really, his goal is not just to give you sort of a scientific study of the historical Jesus. But he's really telling this story because he wants you, he wants you, whether you think of yourself as religious or not or spiritual or not, he wants you to have a personal encounter with the living Jesus. Because that's what it means to be a disciple is so that as you look at Jesus and discover his way, that his way becomes your way and that his story becomes your own story. So that's his invitation today. So we're going to turn and look at this great story um, that you may be familiar with. Um, It's from Mark chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them up um, to Mark chapter 2, or you can just listen as I read it, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So let's hear God's word. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, walk, go home. And so I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up take your mat, go home. And at once he took up, he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. This is such a great story. I just want to jump right into it and really invite you to use your imaginations today. Kids especially, I want you to try to use your imaginations to picture what was going on, okay? Jesus had just been out on a preaching tour, preaching and healing, 
I'm sure it was really exhausting, right? Casting out all those demons and healing all these people, fighting through the crowds, preaching these sermons. And so Jesus is tired. And so it says that he has come back to his home in Capernaum to get some rest. And all Jesus wants to do is just kind of go home and lay on a couch and turn on the Winter Olympics and just chill, right? That's the, he's tired. And instead, he gets home, and we're not sure whether it's his own home or whether it's a disciple's home or a friend's home. It doesn't really say. But when he gets home, when he gets to this home, instead of finding peace and quiet, what does he find? He finds this massive crowd of people, hundreds and hundreds of people, all gathered around Jesus' house. He had become quite a celebrity by this point. You know, his social media feeds were blowing up. Like, everybody wanted to see who he was and get a piece of him and get close to him and and just see what all of the, the hubbub is all about. And so Jesus, very patiently, instead of shooing all these people away, he decides he invites them into his house. There's hundreds of, you know, I don't know how big the house is, maybe 50, maybe 100, maybe 150 people crammed into this little house, and Jesus begins to teach them the word. Now, along comes four guys carrying their paralyzed friend. They want to get him to Jesus. They've heard that Jesus can heal. And so they want to get their friend to Jesus so he can walk again, but they can't get through because the crowd is so big. Imagine, like, have you ever seen a crowd this big, like maybe at a Disneyland or a basketball game or something and you just can't get through? It was like that. They couldn't get through. Nobody would let them through to get to Jesus. But these men would not be deterred. Now, back then, this is the way houses were built. It didn't have like a pitched roof like your house probably does. Um, houses were small. They looked like small square um, huts almost with a flat roof. And the roof was made of, of thatch and clay and mud that had become hardened. And there was often a stone staircase that led outside the outside of the house up under the roof. And people would go up there to dry their clothes or dry food or, or just to hang out and get some fresh air. So these guys decide, y'all, let's head up to the roof. So they take the man on the stretcher and they go up the stairs and they get up onto the roof and they say, well, we got we to get in somehow. So they begin probably with their hands, I guess, they just begin to start to dig through the mud and the clay and the thatch. Now, I just want you to imagine yourself in the room, okay? In fact, imagine it happening right now while I'm preaching this sermon. Just right up there, right up there. All of a sudden, you hear some footsteps. You hear, you hear some pounding, and then you start to hear some scraping, and what, what in the world? What is going on up there? And all of a sudden, some debris starts falling on your head, and then there's some straw falling down, and some clay, and then chunks of mud are just crashing down on top of your head right in the middle of church. Can you believe that? And all the people are starting to yell and complain and say, what in the world? And then all of a sudden, whoosh, an arm sticks through. And then the hole gets bigger and bigger. And then you see this guy's head pop through, and you see the blue sky behind him. What in the world is going on? And everybody's yelling and there's chaos and every, Jesus has stopped teaching because the, the, the debris is just falling down. Nobody can pay attention. And pretty soon the hole's so big and slowly this man starts being lowered down, 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 down by these ropes until he's sitting there at Jesus' feet. And at this point, the whole room goes quiet. Because people have heard the stories. They want to see what Jesus is going to do. They know that Jesus has the power to heal. They are ready for him to say the words. The four men, their little heads sticking through, all four of them, waiting for Jesus to say the words. The man on the stretcher, lying there, waiting for Jesus to say the words. Get up. 
Walk, you're healed. And so Jesus, with all the power of God at his disposal, looks down and says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Huh? Says the man on the mat. Huh? Says the four guys looking through the hole in the roof. Huh? Says the whole crowd. If, you know, if, this were, if there were like sound effects, it would be like the sound of that screeching record sound, like, like that. Or if it's, this is a Western and the guy's playing music in the corner, you know, suddenly he stops playing and it's like this awkward silence. Everybody's like, what? Who, who said anything about sin? And if you're the guy in the mat, I mean, I could imagine if I were the guy in the mat, I'm thinking, Jesus, you know, with all due respect, I appreciate that and everything, but I am not lying on this mat to relax. I can't walk, dude. My legs don't work. Do you think that we went through all that work and busted through that crowd and crawled up those stairs and climbed through and dug through the ceiling so that you could just say your sins are forgiven? I've got a lot bigger problem here, Jesus. And Jesus is like, actually, you don't. There's something deeper going on here in your life. And so I want to say to you, your sin is forgiven. Now, I want you to understand, I, I really do, that Jesus knows this guy is suffering. Jesus loves suffering people. He heals suffering people. He touches broken bodies. We've seen that. We saw that last week when, they, when the students were preaching, right? Jesus loves to restore broken bodies and make people whole. But what's going on here is something really interesting is that Jesus doesn't begin there with this man. He starts at a, a deeper level. He's saying to the man, look, your most urgent need in your life right now, I know that you believe, and I want you to hear Jesus saying this to you, okay? I know that you think you know what the most urgent need in your life right now is. Do you think you know what the most urgent need in your life right now is? Jesus says, I know you know you think you know what is the most urgent need in your life. And I am telling you, your most urgent need is not your suffering. Your most urgent need is your soul. Your most urgent need is what's going on in there. And more than needing to walk, you need to know that you are forgiven. See, this man is, is just like us, even though you know, he's paralyzed and we, you may not be able to relate to that, but in many ways, he's just like us because he's probably thinking to himself, if only I could walk, if only my legs worked again, if only I could get up and be a normal human being where my legs work, then everything would be okay. You know, I'd be able to handle all my other problems. Life wouldn't be so overwhelming. If I could just walk, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be okay. It was his greatest hope. It was his deepest longing. It was what he believed would make him whole and make him right. And let me just say this, it probably would for a while. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus just said to him right here, you know, get up and walk. It'd be amazing. He'd get up, he'd walk, he'd, he'd jump, he'd dance. He'd be ecstatic. He'd be on top of the world probably for a few weeks, a few months, maybe even a few years. But then here's what would happen. It's kind of like Christmas morning. Kids, you know that Christmas morning feeling when it's so amazing and then the next day you're kind of like, meh. Because one day, one day, this man would wake up with a brand new pair of legs and he would realize that he was fundamentally the same person that he's always been. He, he would realize that though he had a restored body and he had restored legs, that there was something deeper inside of him, like a splinter down in his soul that was still lodged there. 
and that there was a deep restlessness and a deep disjointedness and an incompleteness that just left him feeling not right. And this is what Jesus is after more than anything else, not just fix the outward visible problems of our lives, the outward circumstances of suffering that we all want Jesus to fix. He is after ultimately to go right to the core, to the brokenness and the sin deep within. We all have things in our lives. I just want, I want to invite you to think about that right now. What is it that you could identify as what you think is the most urgent need in your life right now? That if you were to say, if I could just get rid of this chronic pain, if I could just have a healthy marriage, if I could just have a job that was actually fulfilling, if I could have a better relationship with my kids, if I could just be married at all, if I could just get into that college. We all have something that we are thinking deep down, whether conscious or not, if I could just get that, then my life would be okay. Then I'd be happy. What is that for you? Be honest with yourself. What is that for you? And I think Jesus is really being honest here that there's nothing wrong with any of those things, right? It's, it's good to want a, a, a pain-free body. It's good to want legs that work. It's good to want a happy marriage. It's good to want a fulfilling job. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. The problem is, is that they don't go deep enough. They don't get to the deep core problem of our lives, the deeper brokenness and restlessness within. Uh, in one of his books, Tim Keller quotes a journalist named Cynthia Heimel, who wrote a really interesting article about struggling actors and actresses who suddenly break through and get the success and the fame that they're after. Have you ever known anybody who's trying to make it, like in L.A.? I had, a, I had a good friend from college who was out there trying to do that for a couple of years, and it's painful. You've got so many young men and women out there struggling, you know, working three part-time jobs, eating ramen noodles three meals a day, <laughs> trying to make a break, trying to get through. Well, Cynthia Heimel wrote an article about the few of them who actually do. And she said a few of them, they actually get their break, they break through, they're suddenly successful, and they have all the fame that they've ever wanted. But what she writes about is that what often happens is that these people suddenly become absolutely insufferable. You know, unstable, angry, manic. They become intensely more unhappy than they ever were previously. Why? Why? Well, because they finally got what they wanted. What they, that, that giant thing that they thought that they needed. And nothing's changed. They find that they're the same, they're still the same person. They, they got the thing that they believed would make them happy, and they're not happy. And then this is what Cynthia Heimel writes. She's, she's not a Christian. She writes this. She said, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. So do you see what Jesus is doing here for this man? He's basically saying, look, I know your deepest wish is to walk but I am not gonna be that God who plays a cruel practical joke on you. I am not gonna just fix your outward circumstances and leave you to the inevitable disillusionment that will result. I'm gonna go deeper. I'm gonna go to the core. I'm gonna give you the only thing that will comprehensively heal you and make you whole. I'm gonna forgive your sin and heal your relationship with God forever. Because here's the thing, y'all, here's the thing. 
Beneath your messed up problems and beneath your messed up body, beneath your messed up relationship, beneath your messed up marriage, beneath your messed up life, there is a problem that is deeper still. And that is a deep brokenness of soul that you need your soul to be made right. You need your sin to be forgiven. You need to be pronounced the beloved of God. You need to be made right and secure in his love forever. That is the deepest need of our life. And Jesus says, this is the thing that I have ultimately come to do. I'm here to fix that. I think um, that one of the very best illustrations of this, I wonder, kids, if you have ever read or seen the movie um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Have you all ever read that or seen that movie? It's such a good one. And um, for you big people, let me tell you what it's about. Um, So there's this boy, there's this nasty little boy named Eustace in this book. And he hates everybody, and everybody hates him. He's mean, he's nasty, he's selfish. And, uh, but somehow he ends up on this magical boat called the, the Dawn Treader. And they're you know, on this journey through the magical sea, and they stop at an island, and Eustace wanders away from the group, and he ends up finding a cave. Well, unbeknownst to him, it is a dragon's cave, a dragon's lair. And as he goes into the cave, he finds a massive trove of treasure, jewels and diamonds and gold. He can't believe it. It's everything he's ever wanted. He's so excited. He said, finally, I can have, I can be the most powerful and wealthy person. I can pay back all those people who've been nasty to me. And he's just ecstatic. And he falls asleep with happiness in his heart, having finally gotten what he most wants. But because he falls asleep with greedy, dragonish thoughts, when he wakes up, he finds that he is, do you remember what's happened to him? He's a dragon. (laughs) Thank you. He is a big, ugly, terrible dragon. And he begins to realize that, oh my goodness, I can't get out of here. I can't get off this island. I can't get on the boat. I can't get back home again. And he begins to fall into despair. And then the great lion, Aslan, shows up. And Aslan leads Eustace to a clear pool of water, and he tells him, undress and jump in. And at first, Eustace doesn't know what he means, but then he realizes he's talking about his dragon skin. And so he starts to bite and claw and try to pull that dragon skin off of himself. And finally, he gets the, that layer of dragon skin off, and he throws it away and realizes there's a whole nother layer of dragon skin beneath. And so he does it again, and he tears off the second layer, and then he tears off the third level layer, and the same thing keeps happening, just layer after layer of dragon skin, and he begins to panic. And then Aslan says to him, you're going to have to let me go deeper. And this is what Eustace later recounts. The very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt. He peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done it through myself three other times, only those hadn't hurt. And there it was, the skin lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he caught a hold of me, and he threw me into the water, and it stung like anything, but only for a moment. And then I looked in my reflection, and I saw I turned into a boy again. 
You know, there's, there's a lot of us who can't even hear that without crying because it's our story. And it's just so beautiful. It's just so beautiful that, you know, we think that we know what our most urgent need is. We think we know what's wrong with us and we think we know how to fix it. And we get that and we get this and we fix that and we fix this and we keep on finding that we are the same old dragon, the same old person underneath. And Jesus says, you're gonna have to let me go deeper. You're, you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna have to let me get in because there's a sickness within, there is a, a twisted soul that has turned upon itself, a selfishness in each of us at the core in all of us that is killing us. And Jesus wants to take his claws and go all the way into the heart and make it right. And it is scary, and it is painful, and it is beautiful. Nothing you can do can save you. Nothing you can do can make you whole and right. But the lion says, I will get to the heart. I will get to the broken place within. Has that happened to you? Or are you just a churchgoer? because this is what he wants. This is what he's offering. So let's finish the story. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. But immediately we see it triggers this great controversy. The religious leaders and the priests who are there are shocked. They can't believe it. Verse seven, who can forgive sin but God alone? They believe that Jesus is blaspheming. That means that somebody is claiming to be like God and do what only God can do. And sure enough, he is, right? Priests, even priests in the Old Testament system don't forgive sin. They declare the forgiveness of sin one time a year in the temple on the Day of Atonement. But even priests can't forgive people of their sin. Only God can do that. Just think about it. If, if Bill went up to Ed and punched Ed in the nose, don't, don't demonstrate, Bill, but, we, but if Bill went up to Ed and punched Ed in the nose, and I went up to Bill and I said, Bill, I forgive you for punching Ed in the nose. What would Ed say? He'd say, you can't do that because he punched me, not you, <laughs> right? You can, you can only forgive the person who offended you. You can only forgive someone when they have harmed you. And so when Jesus is actually saying to this man, your sins are forgiven, he's essentially saying your sin, all sin is actually sin against me. And therefore I and I alone have the power to forgive. And the priests know exactly what Jesus is doing. That by claiming to be able to forgive this man, he is claiming to be God himself. And so Jesus says, as they're freaking out, this very interesting thing in verse nine. He says, which is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now, which do you think is easier, class? Is it easier to say, Rise, take up your man and walk, or is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? It's kind of a tricky question, isn't it? Because on the one hand, I think Jesus is most obviously saying that it's a lot harder to heal someone physically than to tell someone that they're forgiven because one is very visible and the other is invisible. So by showing his power to do the latter, he is proving his ability to perform the former. Does that make sense? On first glance, that seems to be what Jesus is doing. But on the other hand, this is really tricky. Because I think Jesus is also saying that it is actually infinitely harder to forgive sin than anyone can imagine. Jesus is doing something so 
disruptive here. He is proving he's not just a miracle worker. He's not just even the Messiah, that he is actually the savior of the world and that for him to forgive sin, for him to wipe out this man's sin and the sin in the world is actually going to be very, very, very hard. So do you see, do you all see how already the cross is casting its shadow over Jesus? See, Jesus knows that to do this, to say your, your sins are forgiven. He knows that that will immediately put him in the crosshairs of the religious powers. Because in that culture, to claim to be like God is a crime punishable by death. And so Jesus knows at that moment that by pronouncing this man forgiven, he is already taking a, a step towards the cross. He is already taking an irreversible step towards his own crucifixion. I want you all to understand that, that for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven is actually the most costly thing that he could ever do because that claim in itself will end him up pinned to a piece of wood. That his claim, his power to forgive is what ends him up on the cross bearing in himself the whole ocean of the sin of humanity, the whole human religious political rebellion against him, the whole judgment of the world falling upon Jesus at that moment. To forgive for Jesus is the costliest action imaginable. But Jesus does it. He does it in love. Why? Because he knows that whether you're a man on a mat or a stressed out parent or a depressed teenager or a guy working a dead-end job, that what you need most is not a genie to fix your problems, that what you need most is for your soul to be made whole, that you need to be forgiven, that you need someone to lovingly and carefully pierce our self-centeredness and remove the sin that enslaves. He knows that we need to be forgiven, and that is the way to wholeness and everlasting life. So what do we do in response to this? Well, I want to just hold up these five friends as an example of what you could do in response to this amazing story. You know, Mark is holding them up as a model of faith. There were tons of people in the crowd, and in Mark, it's not good to be in the crowd, because usually when you're in the crowd, you're just somebody who gets in the way, because people in the crowd listen but don't act. They observe, but they do not follow. And what these friends do, though, is they represent true faith, because what does true faith do? It stops at nothing to get to Jesus. So according to Mark, faith, true faith, is not believing the right things in your head, which is often the way <clears throat> Presbyterians um, define faith, right? Believing the stuff, the right things in your head. But according to Mark, faith is not believing the right stuff in your head. Faith is actually moving, action, moving towards Jesus, even digging through a ceiling to get to him. For Mark, belief is not belief unless it is belief in action. If you believe your house is on fire, do you sit there and contemplate, hmm, my house appears to be engulfing in flames, right? No, if you believe your house is on fire, what do you do? You act, you move, you do something. And Mark says, true faith is faith that moves, that acts. And I like what James Edwards says. He says, faith is first and foremost, not knowledge of Jesus, but active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs. Not knowledge of Jesus, but active trust that Jesus is sufficient 
for one's deepest and most heartful needs. So that's what I want to invite you to do. I want to, you know, what an opportunity we have to respond to this story with this table. Because guess what? You got to move to get here. You got to move. So who are you? Are you just kind of like uh, an observer sitting around watching? It's even possible for you to come up here and do this out of just like pure rote religious obligation, but not actually be moving towards Jesus in your soul. I want to invite you. I think Jesus is present here at this table, and he is inviting you to respond in faith, which means to make a beeline towards this table, knowing that Jesus is here and that what he is offering you in his body and his blood is everything you would ever need to deeply meet your most profound and lasting need. And so can you come to this table basically saying, Jesus, I thought that this is what I needed to make my life right. I thought that this was my most urgent need, but now I see that were you to fix that and not fix this, I'd be lost forever. So I'm coming to you with the deepest hole and hollowness and brokenness and sin and self-centeredness in my life, knowing that you are sufficient at this table to meet the most lasting need of my life. Some of y'all are thinking, well, you know what? I, I don't even know if I have enough faith to get to the table because I'm not even sure what I believe. Well, guess what? Good news for you in this story. I don't even know if the paralyzed man had any faith. But Jesus saw their faith. The faith of the friends is what got him to the table. So sometimes in your life, your faith is so spent, you are in such a deep spiritual rut that you don't even have enough faith to get to Jesus yourself. And you need a brother or a sister to help you get there. And that's why we're not doing this in the privacy of our own rooms. We're doing this together as a community. You might not feel like you have any faith at all, but guess what? As you look around and as you see men and women, boys and girls coming up this table to have Jesus meet their deepest need, why don't you just come along with them? Bonhoeffer says, sometimes the Christ in your brother is stronger than the Christ in your own heart. Because what saves you in the end is not the amount of your faith. What saves you in the end is the faithfulness of Jesus for you. And he is here. He's ready to touch you, to heal you, to pronounce you whole, to pronounce you forgiven. So you're ready to come. Are you ready to act in faith and receive what Jesus wants to give? He wants to make you whole. Let's pray. Maybe just take a moment to name whatever it is that you maybe came into the service today believing was the most urgent need of your life. And maybe just acknowledge to Jesus that it actually isn't, that there is something deeper and that Jesus is ready to get to that deeper place. Invite him maybe even to dig his claws in and to do that work of making your soul right, pronouncing you forgiven, pronouncing you loved. Lord Jesus, thank you that you come to give us uh, not what we think we need, but we, what you know we need, which is a healed soul, uh, a restored uh, life with you, a restored life with God. And that out of that, we will have the sufficiency that we need to handle our problems, to handle our paralysis, to handle our struggling marriages and our struggling jobs, that by making us right and healing our souls and pronouncing us forgiven and knowing that we are the beloved, we actually begin to develop the power that we need to actually handle our lives and our struggles and our suffering and all those other things. 
So would you give us what we deeply need today at this table? Would you help us to come in faith to receive this gift from your hand? We pray in Jesus' name.